Welcome to the new school. What we wanted to do was talk about the concept of authenticity and vulnerability in an industry that has typically been super buttoned up, super professional, and a little bit old school. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode number four of the New School Video Podcast. In this episode, Meg and I had the opportunity to co-host the CMO of Aperture Investors, Matt Siegel. Matt comes from a really impressive background of top-tier entertainment firms, including Jay-Z's media company, Rock Nation. In this episode, he talks about why he moved over to financial services, the change that Aperture Investors is trying to make, it's to humanize the active management space, and how they're going about doing it. What's really cool about them is you can actually find their portfolio managers on Instagram making videos. And they've already realigned their compensation structure so their portfolio managers are compensated for alpha when they outperform the market. So realigning that with client interests. It's a fascinating interview because who talks about authenticity and vulnerability in the space of active management? Well, Matt does. So let's hear from him. Okay, so we are recording. We are super excited because in this episode, we've got Matt Siegel, the CMO of Aperture Investors. And Matt, I know we were just talking about this, but I keep defaulting to Aperture Investing, but it's actually investors. Can you tell us why? Yeah, it's a really good question, Candice. Uh, and thanks, Candice Meg, for having me. Um, there, there's two reasons it's investors. One is one of the key tenets of our firm is that the human matters in active management. Uh, in this case, it, it's the investor. Um, that's not to say that technology and data don't play an increasingly important role. Um, but in terms of the kind of investing we do, which is you know striving for benchmark outperformance, we really believe that the human is at the core of that process. So our firm is really all about our portfolio managers. Uh, and they are the investors, as it were. Um, the other reason we we are intentionally named investors, uh, which you and I were talking about earlier, uh, is that it's all about the client. Um, and when clients invest with us, they really become, we like to think that they become part of Aperture investors. Um, it's not just us facing them, it's all of us together uh, invested in these products. I think that's really cool. So for anyone that's listening and doesn't know Aperture, it's a really cool company um, because you're doing something really different. You have Peter Krause as your CEO. You're an unusual CMO in financial services because your background is in entertainment. You founded the Indaba, which is the media company in LA. You then worked, went to work at uh, Viacom as well as um, Rock Nation, which is Jay-Z's company. And on your website, it says, the elephant in the room, an industry designed to fail. And when I asked my CFA friends what they knew about Aperture, they said, it's interesting, but unproven. So what does that mean, an industry designed to fail? Well, let me first say, uh, we humil we're big on humility. 
So we don't we don't have all the answers, and we think reshaping this industry or any industry for that matter is a is a long project, and there will be many turns, um, and no one is going to get it all right right away. That said, uh, what we mean by an industry designed to fail is, we believe, pretty baked into the existing math of the existing asset management business. And that is a math which is largely based on uh, a very simple concept, which is a fixed fee based on assets. The more assets you invest, the bigger you're, the more you pay. Um, not the bigger the, the level of the fee, but the, the more absolute dollars you will pay. And if you think about the simple math of that, um, if I invest $100 in a fund with a 1% fixed fee, um, and I don't generate any, I don't receive any performance as the client, then theoretically my fee is is a dollar. So the, the manager sees a dollar in revenue. If I work very hard and generate a 10% return, uh, and now uh, am managing a dollar 10, uh, I see my revenue go from a dollar to a dollar 10. If I raise $10, however, or sorry, if I raise another $100, um, and now I have $200 under management, but I don't generate any performance at all. Again, this is very simple, right? We're, we're oversimplifying, but now I have $200. I don't have any performance. Um, my fee doubled. It went from a dollar to $2. Now, this is an oversimplification. Obviously, every manager will, will say performance is important. Um, and to some extent, it is important to every manager. Uh, and you know, the other thing you can obviously say is if I continue to generate no performance over time, I'm probably not going to be able to double my assets. I'm not going to raise any money. That's all fine. It doesn't change the basic incentive structure of that math that the entire industry is built on, which is that most managers, if they charge a fixed fee, are incentivized to manage more assets and to gather assets. They're not, their primary motivation is not to generate, their primary incentive is not to generate performance. That's true in the long-only world. Uh, it's it's even more true historically in the alternative space because the fixed fees are so high. So even though there is a performance fee in, in uh, most cases, historically, those fees have not been on outperformance of a benchmark. They've been on absolute return. So you're paying a performance fee on beta or on the market return. Um, and the fixed fees are still very high. You know, They can be uh, 1%, 2%. Um, I've seen products that charge 3%. That's for getting out of bed in the morning, or in other words, raising money. Um, it's not necessarily for performance. So when we say an industry designed to fail, you know, everyone's uh, scratched their heads over the, the last market cycle. Um, it's been particularly difficult since markets have just gone up pre-COVID. Um, why is it that active managers can't beat the market? And you go back to Bert Malkiel and um, all the theory about why that's that's not possible. What we're saying is, it's not that it's not possible. It's that the, the fundamental design of the industry was set up to create that outcome. It was it was designed to gather assets, not to generate performance. And that's that's kind of a, the simple, as we we call it, as you mentioned, the elephant in the room of the industry. So we're trying to flip that on its head, and we're trying to say, managers, portfolio managers, shouldn't really get paid a lot of money if they don't actually beat the benchmark that they're that they're running. Um, because we think that's why you hire an active manager. You hire an active manager to generate a superior return. Um, passive 
is a relatively new innovation in the industry. And it's very quickly become not just ubiquitous, but but broad and deep in terms of what you can buy. I mean, you can buy exposure to almost any asset class passively pretty cheaply. And what that we think that only accentuates the fact that, you know, an active manager should have to do better than that. So we actually, we don't even measure our managers against um, the passive alternative. We measure them against the index, which as you guys know, and, and your, your viewers know, you can't really even buy the index. Um, all, 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 EFs have some tracking error to the index. Uh, you know, they'll underperform. It depends on the in large cap U.S. equity. You don't really see it in something uh, that's harder to replicate, like emerging markets credit. You can see a significant tracking error. We think our managers should have to actually beat the index, um, not the ETF. So tell me how all of that, which. I hear you and I understand, but we're talking a lot about numbers, right? We're talking about indices and performance and beating benchmarks. So that makes me think numbers, 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 right? But at the top, you were talking about, you know, this is a human business. So the humans in your business are the portfolio managers and then, of course, your clients. So how do you sort of connect the dots between the philosophy around fees with the humans on both sides of the business between the portfolio managers and the clients? Yeah, that, that also is a great question. So it, it's a great question uh, in the time that we're living in because of, of COVID, but it's fundamental to how we are attempting to build our business um, even before that. So, you know, it's very clear uh, and your listeners and you, you guys know this really well, um, there's lots of salespeople in this business. Uh, the truth of the matter is if you ask an investor, um, would they rather talk to a salesperson or would they rather talk to a portfolio manager? All things being equal, they'd rather talk to the portfolio manager. Now, portfolio managers can't talk to everyone all the time and none of us want them to do that because we want them to be investing. We don't want them to be spending their time, uh, all their time anyway, uh, talking to clients. So you have this interesting uh, conflict that's set up from the beginning. Um, the only way for, rightly so, the only way for an investor to really feel comfortable um, making an allocation to a human, as, as, we're, as we're saying, is to get comfortable with that human and to get to know them. But you can't get to know everybody. So you know when I met Peter Kraus, um, who's been doing this a lot longer than I have, uh, Peter's been running asset and building asset management organizations for the better part of 30 years. You know, I said to Peter, there's this, been this great democratizer in democratizing force in media and communications and marketing, which is the internet and more specifically social media that enables one person to speak to lots of people uh, without, you know, ever leaving their home. Now, in, in the time of COVID, everyone is kind of racing to catch up and realizing, well, I don't have any choice. That's how I have to do business because I can't physically go meet people. Aperture was kind of built on the notion that we could speak more efficiently to many, many more people using authentic digital video and social media. And this is, I, I, I've stolen your word, vulnerable, um, probably used it a bunch of times this week. Uh, I love the way you guys characterize it as authentic and vulnerable, um, because that's something that asset managers have traditionally, as, as you've pointed out, uh, have been very reluctant to do. So we kind of started with the premise, well, if we, if we allow our portfolio managers to be authentic and vulnerable, 
um, then we can reach many, many more people effectively. And more important than us reaching them is them being able to get an authentic look at who the portfolio manager is. Now, this is in no way a replacement for uh, you know, in-depth diligence processes, meeting people in person. Um, we, don't, we don't really see a world where large allocators are going to uh, make those kinds of decisions without actually meeting people and directly interacting with them. So I just want to say that up front. A, a lot of people respond to this and say, oh, well, what you're trying to do, it, it'll never really, we don't think it's going to replace uh, that process. What we are saying is it gives that allocator all the way down to um, a retail investor with just a few thousand dollars to invest. It gives everyone on that spectrum a new way to get to know the portfolio manager and, the, and carry them around in the palm of their hand. And we think that's really important. And we think that's that can only be a positive thing. You know, what I think is super interesting, and I was telling you off camera, is we did a little bit of online stalking as we do for like our preparing for our interviews, you know, and I saw- Oh, I'm nervous. <laughs> you know your secrets, okay? So, um, I saw all your portfolio managers, which I thought was really interesting on your website is to have the link to the portfolio managers, but not only is it like their LinkedIn, which is very typical, and their Twitter, but it's their Instagrams, and you click onto their Instagrams and you see the portfolio manager, you know, at their desk creating a video. And I'm like, this magic, right? Because I think what the beauty in that is like what you're saying is you're spreading ideas and there's an information flow that you're creating that never really existed before and maybe might have existed only for the high ultra net worth who had the ability yeah. to have one-to-one -one thing. How, what was the conversation like, or what does it continue to be like uh, in your role? How do you get the portfolio managers to show up on camera like that, to be vulnerable and authentic? Like, what has that experience been like? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's the aspect of my role that is most similar to, uh, believe it or not, working at a place like Rock Nation, uh, because in this regard, Portfolio managers are the talent, they're the human talent, um, and they're no different from athletes or artists or, or anyone else. Uh, they're each an individual with their own strengths, weaknesses, insecurities. Uh, they all they bring all that to the table. And so it's the same exercise of, you know, how do you get somebody to be authentic and vulnerable? I mean, I think that those words are key. And it's different for everybody. It has to be customized. I will say, uh, in in my experience, I don't know whether you know the PMs would agree. Uh, it's much it's much more hands off than you would think, and I got a lot of feedback from because no no one had ever really done this before. Certainly with with this set of portfolio managers, um, you know, I got a lot of feedback at the beginning. I need more guidance, Matt. What should I be talking about? Um, how should I be saying it? And I think at the beginning. Uh, You'd have to ask them, but I suspect at the beginning, a lot of them got frustrated um, not getting more, you know, directive guidance from me. But that's deliberate because the stuff that works is, you know, whether it's an athlete talking about how they perform or an artist talking about their art or a portfolio manager talking about how they pick stocks, I can't, I'm not going to put those words in their mouth any better than they can. 
you know, at the margins, there's maybe massaging or it's really interesting when you talk about this, you know, maybe talk about that more. But the best stuff from portfolio managers, just like any other talent, um, comes from, you know, what it is that they're authentically thinking about and how they want to say it. And, you know, you take a guy like uh, Simon Thorpe, who's one of our long short credit uh, managers. Simon's been running long short credit strategies for for many years. Um, he has a lot of experience in the business, but had not done anything remotely like this, certainly via social media or the internet. And, you know, it was like a huge accomplishment for us. Last year, we we were told by LinkedIn that he was being named that he was the number one influencer in the finance category on LinkedIn. Uh, and, you know, for me, for a guy like that, to get that kind of recognition, you say, well, how did that happen? How did you people say, how did you turn him into that kind of an influencer? Well, the whole point is we didn't turn him into anything. We, we, we kept him exactly the same person he is and we just exposed people to that. Well, you gave him the space, right? You opened up the this space, yeah. you know, for him to step into. And I think that that space and that empathy is really important because you're, you're, you're giving your portfolio managers an opportunity that they're not going to find elsewhere to really just feel confident in, okay, this, I am meaningful. My yeah. insights are valuable and the way that I say them and the way that I think are really meaningful. I want to, when you're talking about sort of, you know, working with portfolio managers is no different than working with athletes and artists. And you talk about insecurities. I was like, Rihanna doesn't have any insecurities. Like I can't imagine that, you know, people like of that stature, you know, come to work with, with insecurities. But then I thought, well, maybe not. I mean, do you have any examples from your experience in entertainment where you were working with an artist or an athlete and you were sort of um, like shocked at their inability to be vulnerable or maybe on the flip side of it, like, do you have a story of where an artist's like true, like raw vulnerability just like catapulted them to new heights? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, so re, re is, re is, uh, re is the exception that proves the rule because or I, that's the right phrasing. She's just amazing. And, um, working with her. I learned, I learned so much from working with her. Your question actually, your question reminds me of a story from much earlier in my career. So when, when a friend and I, my friend, Dan Zaccanino, who I went to college with, when we started in Daba, which was this crowdsourcing platform for music, one of the things that we hadn't originally anticipated was that it would become kind of a hotbed for remix contests. So, you know, we built this community of artists and musicians and um, what would happen is we would upload the, the raw individual, they're called stems, the audio components of a song. So the guitar, um, the drums, the vocals, and then you just put it out there and people create their own versions of the music. When we started doing that in 2008, uh, there was still a lot of reluctance on the part of artists in the industry. And a lot of people said, well, no artist is going to allow themselves to be, sorry, I keep coming back to this word, to be vulnerable in that way. Um, because so much work went into creating the song the way they wanted it, right? And the way the producers wanted it. That, you know, allowing this to happen in such an uncontrolled fashion was something that, you know, people just wouldn't want to do. And the very first 
program that we did was for Mariah Carey. And the reason it jumped out at me when you asked the question is because uh, if, if the audience doesn't know this, you know, obviously everyone knows that she's a luminary. Um, but in the musical community as a vocalist, she's one of the most respected vocalists, uh, you know, in history, I would say. And Mariah's vocals, that's something like, you don't just post that on the internet in raw, you know, form and allow people to mess with it. That was never going to happen. And they, she, she and her label gave us um, what are called the, the dry audio stems, meaning no processing, no mixing, <clears throat> no effects, all the raw vocal tracks. And I don't know that her voice or her art had ever been uh, vulnerable, to use your word, in that way before. And we, we just thought that was amazing. And, you know, for the literally thousands of people that got to work with that material, it was, you know, it was a fantastic experience. I think about what's the analog in asset management? You know, it's, it's probably somehow, how can we, how can we make, how can we allow clients to be a fly on the wall, you know, in the investment process? Now we, we have barriers in this industry that you don't necessarily have in media. There's all sorts of uh, important compliance and regulatory issues, but I don't think that means that we can't continue to push ourselves and say, you know, what does that look like? I love that. I mean, just like in such a different world, I've grown up in financial services. This is where I've spent every day of my career. And so to sort of just envision the two very different worlds that you've worked in is pretty fascinating. When you and Peter were first having the conversation about the potential and like what could be possible, did it, did it run through your head at all? Like, can't do it. Like I, I see what's going on over there in financial services. And like, that is like way too big of a, like a shift that would need to happen for me to be interested in working in, fin in, in leaving entertainment and sort of coming over to financial services. Like, did that ever cross your mind? Uh, yeah, it, it crosses your mind. I, I think, look, for me, uh, and maybe this is waxing too personal. Um, for me, everything is about people, uh, you know, whether it's personal or professional. And so for me, Peter is such an insp inspirational visionary. Um, and when you see somebody who, there's a bravery to it. When you see someone who's been in an industry for so long, who is not only willing to acknowledge what's wrong with that industry, but hell-bent on fixing it, you, you kind of can't help but be swept up in that. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, uh, your question is no match for, for that, that kind of uh, motivating factor, I guess I would say. Uh, you know what's super interesting, Matt, is I do a lot of yoga, and one of the phrases when we're doing some of the more advanced poses that they bring up and again and again, which I always think is really interesting, is move cautiously but with courage. And I think that's very interesting. So as you think about changing the industry, let's just go like at that level, like because that's really what you're committed to. What wakes you up in the middle of the night? Like when you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not sure we can do this. Like what is the thought that you have? You know, we, we've been talking a lot about imposter syndrome and how we all have it and how it shows up for us. Mm -hmm. 
And we talked about our last episode with Carl Richards in depth about that. And it's really interesting because he actually personifies his imposter as Bart Simpson's father. I think that's what he's like, and boss, you know? So when you Homer. think, huh? I think he's a Homer, yeah. yeah. So he, or it might've been Homer's boss, actually. Where I think oh, Mr. Burns. Burns. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Burns. And he says, he sees Mr. Burns with a switch that says, Carl's career on or off, you know? So I thought that was really interesting. But as you think about taking this on, like what is the thought or the fear that comes up for you as you move through all your work? It's a great question. Uh, these are terrific questions. Um, there's so many ways I can answer that. So look, I think anytime you do lots of different things as I've been fortunate to do in my career, you can't help but, you know, wonder, you can't help but constantly ask yourself, well, what is it that folks who've been doing this a lot longer know that I don't know? I think that's important uh, in, I think that's important in for, for everyone in any situation, it's particularly important for someone who, you know, I'm an outsider to this industry. I've only been here for going on three years, it's important for me to always ask that question. I think in the, in, the, in the digital world and in the marketing space, it's interesting how often you will find, and I think this is true in financial services, healthcare, media, a whole host of industries, you will find that there isn't actually some traditional orthodoxy that you don't know about um, that makes your disruptive idea a bad one. Um, it's, it's usually a good idea. It's often just more a question of, well, how fast are you going to be able to move? And, and what are the, what are the actual kind of mechanical impediments to, to making that happen that you won't understand and won't have context for because you haven't been in the industry like Peter has for 30 years. So, I mean, I wake up with that all the time. Um, cause at the same time, that's what makes this so exciting because you're just, you're just always learning something new. It's interesting you called it imposter syndrome. I think if you, I think if you accept that uh, life is just, you know, I don't have to wax philosophical again, but uh, the exciting thing about life is just being able to continue learning all the time. And if you're not vulnerable and you don't feel a little bit like an imposter, then there wouldn't be anything to learn because you would know everything. <laughs> I think that Candace was telling me in your conversation that you've done extensive traveling across Africa. And she and I were just asking ourselves out loud, you know, have there been any of those experiences in your life and your travels and places you've visited and cultures that you've sort of, you know, that you dove into head first and really experienced? Like, have any of those personal experiences shaped? who you are today and, and where you are professionally as well as personally. Travel experiences specifically? Yeah. So I, not as much as I would like recently, uh, but in, in one of my African travels, actually my honeymoon, my wife and I climbed uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, that all um, you did on your honeymoon? I mean, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We went on safari afterwards. Uh, 
I I had kind of previously caught caught the climbing bug, um, and I climbed Mount Rainier and did some ice climbing and had very high hopes to do a lot more of that. Uh, my professional and family life kind of got in the way, but uh, one day I'll return to it. I, I I always connect climbing and that kind of travel to uh, just just you know who I am as a person, and that affects I think uh, how I approach you know, all things professional. Um, it's the kind of thing that you, in a way, it's very masochistic. Uh, you, you choose to put yourself in a position that's going to be um, not just strenuous, but oftentimes incredibly painful uh, because what comes after will be worth the worth the reward and, and there'll be a payoff that makes you feel really, really good. Uh, doing something new in business is very much like that. Um, you know, anytime you build something from scratch, uh, there's a lot of pain, a lot of pivoting. It's very, very hard work. Um, but the payoff is so much sweeter because you've, you've built something new that you've had a hand in, uh, in creating along with the other people that you're working with. So I don't know if that, that's more about the, the type of travel and than, than place, but yeah, that is the first thing that comes to mind. You know, I used to, we used to talk about this a lot, but I kind of had the feel when I used to drive to work back when driving was a thing <laughs> to work. And I, I remember um, when I worked at United Capital, my boss and I at the time having a conversation because we were launching something new. And whenever you're doing something new, you're like, are people going to get it? Are we going to look stupid? Have we got it? You know, like all of those questions come up. And I remember him and I having a conversation. I said, you know, quite frankly, if I don't have the fear of failure as I'm driving to work, it's not that interesting for me. You know, that really is the space. And I think it's like everything that you've said, it's a space of evolution. It's a space of learning. Um, and I think what we're finding more and more, which I think is super exciting, is all the kind of traditional, what would have been historically like self-help, psychology, performance coaching, is now starting to infiltrate all of our work lives and how we approach business problems. And really like knowing that if you're not working on understanding yourself it's very difficult to understand others and then the context of what you're doing because you have to understand the human condition to influence and impact change right so i'd be interested to know that like is there a book that you're reading or you've read that really has shifted or helped you as you think and move through your career and what you're building now? Uh, yeah, many. You pivoted at the end there to, uh, to a book. I had a lot of other thoughts as well. Okay, tell us your other thoughts. Um, well, now, now I'm having trouble keeping track of all of them. <laughs> uh, it would be hard to pick I'm looking, I've got all, 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 this is the nice thing about working from home. You get to be surrounded by your books, right? Um, you know, when I was working in media, uh, The Master Switch by Tim Wu was very, very important to me. 
I do think there's broader lessons uh, beyond, you know, beyond just media, but the the way he framed kind of the the overarching historical um, evolution from industries where, uh, or I should say, conditions where means of communication were necessarily kind of disparate and disconnected and in a way democratic um, because they weren't centrally controlled to a contraction where they were centrally controlled. It's kind of the, you know, the age old um, uh, flow between monopoly versus, um, you know, free markets. The, 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 that was very eye-opening to me in terms of understanding everything that, you know, was happening in media. In some ways, I think about that, and this may be a stretch, but, you know, I think about that in, in the context of other industries as well. You tend to see processes of consolidation, uh, and consolidation leads to larger and larger entities, which are then harder and harder to change. Um, you know, it's very difficult to steer the, the big ship, as everybody says. And then you've got a, an industry has to nurture disruption from somewhere. And that will very often, if not most often, come from the outside. Now, you know, sometimes that disruption is acquired. So you just have, you know, continued consolidation. But I think it's an, it was an important frame for me in terms of just understanding how industries changed over time or, or resisted change, more importantly. And, you know, everyone's read The Innovator's Dilemma. Um, if you take that as kind of foundational to everything I just said, it, it's even more interesting. Yeah, I love that. You were talking a little bit earlier about learning, you know, just sort of constantly seeking opportunities to learn. And I, I'd love to ask, you know, one of our final questions around, what have you learned at Aperture specifically as it relates to how you are making those human connections between the investors who are the portfolio managers and the investors who are working with those portfolio managers. And, and I'll tell you why I'm asking the question, because I think in our work, we come up against quite a bit of resistance to the idea that you can connect with people in really meaningful ways through authenticity, vulnerability, empathy, and by not worrying so much about perfection and polish and just being real. We, we do, we just come up against a lot of resistance to the idea. And there's the industry, generally speaking, wants to sell performance or they want to sell a process. And there are many consultants in the space that will tell you, come up with a process, sell the process, you know, and, mm -hmm. and obviously that's just not how, it's not what we believe. And, and Matt, when you and I first spoke, it was like, Yes, 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 and yes. Like we're so aligned in, in, in all of this, but it's 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 rare to find that alignment. So what have you learned in actually doing this at Aperture? You know, having the portfolio managers doing Instagram stories, like what have you learned that has been relevant to how you are shaping your future strategy for marketing? Uh, a lot could probably fill a, a bunch of books. Uh, I'll try to organize my thoughts so they're they're digestible. Uh, one definitely relates to something, uh, Candace, that you asked earlier, you know, what keeps you up at night, which I remember is where I thought you were going with this. You know, when you're trying to explain anything or sell anything, complexity is the enemy. 
people are, we are all human beings and we want to understand things and we want to connect with other people. And the best way to do that is around simple concepts, which we can explain to others and wrap our arms around and have some meaning to us. The problem is this is inherently a complex industry dealing with complex products. So I'm not saying anything that your audience doesn't already know. It's always been the problem in asset management and financial services. First of all, you're talking about numbers. Uh, with some exceptions, you know, the general public, most people don't necessarily want to do math or talk about numbers all the time. Uh, we certainly don't. I mean, it's just, it's just natural. Uh, and they can be, they can be complex concepts, which are, which are hard to digest. So you've got this, uh, you've got this push and pull between wanting to be transparent and real and authentic and raw, <clears throat> which are going to be in this, in this industry, those are going to be complex things. Like the, the raw version of it is almost by definition going to be more complex than the polished than the polished version. So you've got a conflict right there because what you want to show people and what you want to enable them to get to know is necessarily a complex thing. So I guess what have I learned? Um, it's not necessarily that uh, things need to be complex in this industry. There's still a place for simplicity. I don't mean polish. Um, I mean I mean simplicity that can complement things that are naturally you know complex and kind of the the raw versions of themselves. So like you know what what the hell am I talking about? I mean to take a practical example, a portfolio manager might have a a very very complex case or investment thesis for why they're in a particular security. In fact, hopefully they probably do have a complex, sophisticated case for why they why they've made that investment. Not everyone necessarily wants to hear that whole story all the time. Some people do, so context is important. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a simple version of it uh, that one can start with or lead with or use to make a connection. And I think a lot of times it's become clearer and clearer to me that you know, that that kind of complexity uh, isn't necessarily your friend, either the clients or ours. Um, it's the enemy because it 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 obfuscates, uh, you know, whatever the, the real truth is or the, the point that you're trying to get at. So you, I guess I guess in short, what I you kind of got to have both and you've got to understand when one is more useful than the other. Um, so that that context is really important. We always say that simplicity is sophisticated. And it's the hardest thing to that's get. A, thank you. Yeah, that that's a uh, very eloquent way of yeah. making the point I was I was trying to make. So I think that's beautiful. So as we wrap up, we have one final question that we ask all our guests, and that is, which I know you're expecting, what does the new school mean to you? To me, it's about aggressively. Uh, because we all have to move quickly and there isn't a lot of time to sit around and wait. These, these changes are, are happening now. It means aggressively allowing your clients and your customers and your investors to see something that they weren't able to see before. And 
that's going to be that's going to be painful and raw and difficult for a lot of folks that aren't used to it but i really don't think uh i think that there's no more there's no more the jury's not out anymore um you know i think our our peers our colleagues our and especially our clients and our customers expect to have that kind of visibility and that kind into process but also that kind of exposure to the people that are managing their money and whether that's a portfolio manager of a fund or an ria um, or wealth manager a financial advisor i really think that's the case um, you know, I expect that from my, my own financial advisor. I, I want to be able to, you know, have off the cuff conversations and see how he feels and get to know him. And these platforms and these tools and the data that's available, we're all built for this. You know, we're not, we're not co-opting anything. So I use the word aggressively because you really, uh, you, you can only take too long. You can't you can't do this stuff too quickly, and I think um, the faster and the more aggressively folks pursue these these changes, the, the better it'll be for that for their clients, and the better it'll be for their businesses ultimately. Such a delightful conversation. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. I don't think I ever imagined. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I don't think we'd ever imagined we'd have this conversation with an asset management firm. So thank you for coming on, Matt. If people are going to find you, where's the best place to find you? Uh, so my Twitter is Matthew L. Siegel. Um, I'm sure we can put it up or something like that. Yeah. Uh, my LinkedIn is Matthew Siegel, um, active on both. Uh, and of course, folks can always email me. I'm just Matt, M-A-T-T, -T, at Aperture Investors. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to send it to all my CFA friends and beyond. Um, uh, if you wrapping up, thanks for everyone for listening in. If you love this episode, please like it, share it with the people that you think would get the most value from it. Uh, thanks again, Matt. Such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. And thanks everyone for listening.